The Lord of Hosts will do battle for us. Behold his mighty hand. Father, move us. Good morning. Uh, I just want to say this. Uh, our first service was, was packed today, and then to see good crowd in second service is really encouraging. Those of you... Uh, you know, late morning people, we appreciate it. Um, there's actually not room for you in the earlier service. Just kidding, we'll make room. But uh, it's exciting to see the growth that's happening here at Prodigal. Uh, we're going to dive into the finale of our Exodus sermon series. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. It's the second book of the Bible. We're going to start at chapter 7, and I just want to kind of give you the heads up. This is like a deep theological sermon, different than typical. Um, and so for some of you, you're like, Yes. And for others of you who are like, uh-oh. So, but this will be the point in kindergarten class where you would, the teacher would say, hey, let's get on your thinking caps. So let's try and do that as we dive in to uh, the book of Exodus. Chapter 7, it says this, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all over the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even, the vessels of, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh, and his officials instruct the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. This, this episode here with the uh, first plague really sets the tone and kind of gives us a pattern of what takes place through the next several chapters. Moses and his brother Aaron confront Pharaoh uh, he says, let my people go. Pharaoh's heart becomes hard, and then the next plague happens. And the question here is this, who is God? Is, are the Egyptian gods God? Is Pharaoh God, or is it the Lord? And we don't have time to examine all of the 10 plagues or the confrontations that Moses has with Pharaoh, uh, but we will casually stroll by each of the plagues and look at its theological ramifications and its intense effect that it had on the nation and people of Egypt. I do want to say this from the get-go. Each one of the ten plagues actually counters one of the Egyptian gods that were worshipped. And so it's not necessarily just Moses versus Pharaoh. It's the Lord versus the gods of the Egyptians. Plague one, the Nile to blood. Back in chapter one, we learned that the Egyptians worship the Nile, that there's a goddess of the Nile. And so by, by Moses turning it into blood, he's hitting them where it hurts. 
The Nile was their source of life. It's not Moses versus Pharaoh here. It's the Lord versus Isis, not the terrorist organization, but the Egyptian goddess of the Nile, Isis. And it's interesting to know here that the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate this plague. The Bible says it wasn't a trick. There's actually supernatural evil and it has power as well. Plague two, frogs. Frogs. Everywhere. They come out of the Nile. Everywhere. The Bible says that they're in the ovens. They're in the beds. They're in the drawers. And for us, we kind of think of like Kermit, like pokes his head out. Hey, this is not Kermit, okay? This is a disaster for the community. Uh, it is very unsanitary. The environmental effects would be disastrous. Um, once they begin to die, the stench of rotting frogs everywhere would be terrible. And as with the first plague, the relevance of frogs is usually thought to reflect a polemic against Egyptian religion. Heket is the goddess of childbirth, and she is depicted in Egyptian hieroglyphics and art with the head of a frog. It was to counteract Heket. This is the last of the plagues that the magicians are able to duplicate. They're able to duplicate the Nile turning to blood, and they're able to duplicate the massive influx of frogs in, the, in, the, in, the, in Egypt. But interesting that Pharaoh doesn't need his Egyptians or his, his magicians or sorcerers to duplicate the plagues. He needs them to reverse the plague. The cessation of the plagues is just as miraculous as their inception itself. So already, Pharaoh, he's beginning to feel the effects. He asked Moses, Pray to the Lord that the frogs go away. I've had enough. I'll let your people worship. Uh, Moses says, great, when do you want me to do this? And here's Pharaoh's response. He says this, tomorrow. There's amphibians everywhere, okay? And can you imagine not being able to go to the bathroom without a bunch of frogs? Uh, and they're everywhere. He's had enough. He goes to Moses and says, Okay, I'll let your people go worship. Moses says, okay, I'll pray to the Lord. When do you want me to do this? Tomorrow. I'm good for another day. See, there's this pride in Pharaoh that refuses to humble himself. There's something in Pharaoh that says, no, this isn't real. I can take this. So the next day Moses prays, the frogs leave, and Pharaoh goes back on his word. This is another pattern that we'll see throughout these uh, stories. Plagues three and four are gnats and flies. Well, when you've got thousands and thousands of frogs that die, then you're going to get some flies and some gnats, okay? This one really bugged the Egyptians. Thank you. The gods of Egypt that it counteracts is Set, the god of the desert, and Uachit, which is represented by a fly. Plagues five is the death of the livestock. And now there could be a connection between, uh, four, you know, three and four with these insects, gnats and flies being disease-carrying insects. We're not really sure. But then the livestock start dying. Uh, Hathor and Apis are represented by a cow and bull in the Egyptian pantheon. And all these affect the Egyptians' uh, property, food, sanitation, but they're not necessarily affecting the Egyptians themselves on their own bodies. That changes with the sixth plague. It's the plague of boils. Painful boils all over their bodies. They couldn't sit down. They couldn't lay down. And they would have cried out to healing for the Egyptian goddess of healing. They would have cried out to Sekhmet and say, please heal us of all these boils. And Sekhmet would not listen. 
would not listen. And so all they could do is to try and go outside and stay under the sun so that the boils would dry out. But they couldn't go outside because the next plague was hail. Hail, lightning. The Bible says it's not just these large pieces of ice hailing from the sky. Also, there's lightning and it would burn things. There was fires everywhere in Egypt. And hail's kind of a bummer now, but if you lived in a mud brick house with straw roof, it's disastrous. Your whole world is crumbling. And this, the Egyptians would have cried out to their sky goddess, Newt. It's the picture of Newt. Newt is the one that's holding the stars above. She represents the sky. They would have cried out, Newt, stop! Stop this. And it's during this hailstorm that Pharaoh has another conversation with Moses. And he kind of tries to make a deal like he did before. He tried this earlier with the frogs. But the kind of deal he tries to offer Moses doesn't really make any sense. It's like if you go to buy a car and the, the car salesman says, hey, this car is $15,000. And you say, oh, okay. I got five bucks, you know. Um, the, the car salesman's like, no, I'm on to you. That's not a real offer. The same is happening here with Pharaoh to God. So in essence, he says, I'll let your people go. You were right, we were wrong, just stop the hail. Is this sincere? Is this real? Or is it like my mom used to put it? Are you sorry about what you did? Or are you sorry you got caught? This is Pharaoh. It's a false repentance. It's half repentance. It shows a pattern in Pharaoh, but it also shows a pattern on us, in us, right? We, something might be going on. We might be going into debt, and we're like, God, get me through this month. I'll do whatever you say. Help me, God. Get me out of this month. It, 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 this is so hard. I'm swimming in these bills that are unexpected. Get me out of this month. And then he gets you out of that month. And, and you maybe, in fact, get an increase. And then we go back to our old patterns, right? So I don't want to just pick on Pharaoh here because I think we kind of need to pick on us too. Whenever there's that respite, whenever there is that removal of whatever was afflicting us, our dependence on the Lord seems to go back to business as usual. Have uh, you ever heard the story about the guy who was on a diet and he wanted a donut so bad he could taste it? So he's driving past a donut shop and he makes a deal with God. He says, okay, Lord, I'm going to drive through the parking lot, and if there's a parking spot right in front of the donut shop, you want me to get a donut. And you're laughing because you've done that before. And so, sure enough, 12th time around, he sees a parking spot right in front, and he parks there, and he partakes in that donut. We laugh, but we all play that game, right? We, we, we rationalize ourselves into compromise. We all have commit. In what ways are you rationalizing or justifying doing something that God doesn't maybe want for you? In what ways are you rationalizing that, justifying it? In what ways are you half committing? We're much more like Pharaoh than we'd like to admit. Plague eight, locusts. Locusts. Now, in Hebrew, it doesn't actually say the word locust. It says swarms. So we don't know what this swarm is, but swarms come and they destroy all the crops. Uh, first the water, then the livestock, now the crops. Water, land, air. The Lord 
is Lord over all of creation. This confronted the Egyptian god Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. And these false gods of Egypt are no match for the Lord. Plague nine, darkness. The Bible says it's not just like a typical night darkness. It was a darkness that could be felt. Some scholars think that it was a giant sandstorm from the desert blown in that blocks out the sun. And interesting, the Hebrews had light, but the Egyptians had none. This confronts the Egyptian gods, Ray and Horus, the sun gods. So what's Pharaoh's response? Chapter 10, verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, or in Princess Bride talk, as you wish. Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Then finally came the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn. The Hebrews were to slaughter a lamb and brush the blood across the top of the doorpost and both sides. And then the destroyer would go throughout the night and it would pass over the homes that had this sign, this mark of blood. In the homes at which it did not have that sign, it would kill the firstborn son. And so it was. And it was by far the worst of the plagues. And it was the one that broke the camel's back. It was the one that pierced through the pride in Pharaoh and led to the exodus, the exit out of slavery into freedom. This one really counteracts Pharaoh himself being the God. Pharaoh considered himself a God, so did the Egyptians, and his son was a son of God. And so this one rejects Pharaoh as the Lord. One can picture Pharaoh holding his lifeless son in his arms, saying, summon Moses, let the people go. For God's sake, let the people go. It's a powerful story, and I want to hone in on a couple of things here. And as with much of this story throughout Exodus, we're left with tons of questions, right? Uh, The Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pardon the pun, but this question has plagued scholars for thousands of years. On the question of free will. Now, there there are different ways that the Hebrew text describes the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Sometimes it's ambiguous and it says his heart hardened. Other times it says that his heart was made heavy. Interesting. It's fascinating because when it comes to the uh, judgment in the Egyptian mythology, the Egyptian book of the dead, uh, when you die, you go before Anubis. Anubis is the one with the dark face there. You go before Anubis and there's these scales and you would, he would get your heart and he would put it on one side of the scale and then on the other side would be the feather of ma'at. And if your heart was heavier than the feather of ma'at, then you were torn away, thrown to a demon, and then ceased to exist as a soul. Your heart has to be lighter than a feather. So righteousness is always seen as lightening your heart. This is where we get the phrase, uh, a lighthearted moment. Uh, he made his heart heavy. That's Egyptian speak for he began to seal his own fate. Uh, 
The equivalent would be Pharaoh's putting the nail in his own coffin. He's sealing his fate. The plagues were opportunities to repent, not only for Pharaoh, but also for the Egyptians. But we've still got a big theological problem. Uh, God overtaking Pharaoh and making him do something that maybe he didn't even want to do. That, that's a problem, right? Uh, it at least raises some deep questions for us. I asked our staff about this passage of Scripture a couple weeks ago, and we began to kind of wrestle with it. And one staff member said, it makes me uncomfortable, and I don't even want to think about it because it makes me so uncomfortable. Uh, these are my son's toys. Okay. Uh, this is Darth Vader. This is Ray. And if you know the fact that they don't exist in the same Star Wars time period, you're a huge nerd. Um, <laughs> but these are his toys. I only play with him when he goes to bed. And, uh, and this is Pharaoh and this is Moses. And God calls, I'm God. I call Moses to go approach Pharaoh. And Moses, okay, uh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not gonna let your people go. And so I say, give him some plagues. Psh, oops, sorry, Moses. Um, <laughs> the force is strong with this one. My son's not watching this. Okay. Pew. Okay. Plagues. Ah. Okay, I'll let your people go. Oh, no, you don't. My heart is hard now. Is God a puppet master controlling Pharaoh and Moses? Is he really wanting to let the people go? But God says, nope, not going to do it. And he goes, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to do it. It's unfair. It's unjust, right? It's like if Dex, I pick him up. And he says, no, dad, no. And then I throw him on his sister and I grab his fist and I make him start doing this to his sister. He's like, I don't want to hit sister. And then I pick him up and I go, you never hit your sister. Go to your room. No iPad for two hours. <laughs> he didn't even want to, but I made him. Is this what's happening here with God and Pharaoh? We've got ourselves a little bit of a dilemma. Is God predetermining what's happening to Pharaoh? is God punishing Pharaoh and the Egyptians for something that Pharaoh himself didn't even want to do and God made him do. It's a conundrum, right? You can see the ramifications of this. So what's the Bible saying? How is God fair? There are three dominant theories. We're going to look at a couple, and this is kind of the thinking caps part, okay? Um, and I, there's no way that I can fully resolve this tension um, in 20 minutes, nor in 20 years, okay? This has plagued us for a long time. It will continue to do so. But here's some uh, explanations uh, that kind of help, might help us grasp this a little bit better. Theory number one, God hardened Pharaoh's heart because God always determines everyone's decisions for his own glory. This is uh, the Calvinist school, school of thought, okay? Um, number two, God hardened Pharaoh's heart because God sometimes determines some people's decisions, especially leaders who set themselves up as a God in order to show who is God and who is not. Three, God hardened Pharaoh's heart as judgment because Pharaoh repeatedly hardened his own heart first. The judicial solidification of our own choices, giving us over to our own way, is how God's wrath works. Um, in all, there are 10 places throughout the book of Exodus that uh, ascribe Pharaoh's hardening of hearts to God. And there are also 10 places where it says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened or he himself hardened his heart. So it, thus the hardening is as much Pharaoh's act as God's own work. Um, even more significant is that the first five plagues, it always says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It is not until the sixth plague 
where God is said to have hardened Pharaoh's heart. How did God do this? Did he just go in there and like go be mean? Um, or God simply revealed himself. He revealed his power, his supremacy, his love for his people, his hatred of sin and slavery through the signs and wonders of the plague. And it was this revelation that actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, in this sense, God's responsible for everything in the universe. He has provided the occasion, the circumstances, the environment, which all things, including people, operate. But he's not guilty of wrongdoing. Now, there are many other theories to help explain this. One interesting one that I found in the Jewish uh, rabbinic tradition, it's called the bold theory. It states that God, had God not hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh would have therefore released the Israelites due to mounting pressure of the plagues. This would not have been a free choice of Pharaoh, because it, and it wouldn't have constituted as repentance. Rather, the decision to, to release would have been coerced by the plagues, coerced by God. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he strengthens it so that he's actually able to make a decision himself. Giving him the fortitude not to let the plagues automatically dictate his decision. Thanks to the hardening, the king now has a choice whether to release the Israelites or keep them in slaves. Two possibilities are open to him because God strengthened his resolve. In all these explanations, there's one obvious point. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt is entirely God's doing and under his complete control. A couple other questions. Doesn't the story kind of make God mean, right? Like, when we picture the Egyptians holding their firstborn son crying, it's kind of mean. It's not even kind of, right? Judgments were opportunities to repent. Not just for Pharaoh, but for the Egyptians. And some did. Actually, we find out later in Exodus that some Egyptians joined the Israelites to become the people of God in the desert. They repented. They turned from their false gods. And as we finish this, um, I'm going to grab a seat. Now, I'm doing this intentionally because this story, when it was first told, it was told by campfires. It was told at dinner tables. And when, when the Passover celebration, the holiday, was, was first and originally communicated, it was passed down orally. Uh, it would be fathers talking to sons, grandmas talking to their kids, or their, gra their, their grandkids. And they would say, the kid would say, why do we follow the Lord? And, and that grandparent would say, well, we haven't always been free. In fact, we were slaves in Egypt. And we cried out to the Lord. And through powerful signs and wonders, he freed us from Pharaoh's control. Let the people go. And we get to the Red Sea and we turn around and Pharaoh changed his mind. Pharaoh's army is coming from the, behind us. And we're stuck. Pharaoh's army on one side and the water's in front of us. And Moses lifts up the staff of God. This simple shepherd's staff that became a staff of the Lord. And he strikes the water in the sea parts. And we cross on dry ground. As we get to the other side, Pharaoh's army follows in after us. And the walls that Pharaoh had built up against God and the walls of the sea became one and they came crashing down behind us. That's why we follow the Lord. He saved us. I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And as Christians, the story doesn't end there for us. It doesn't stop 
it, it, the, the water's crossing. Uh, it, it, it starts and stops with Jesus. And there are countless connections between Moses and Jesus. Here's a few. We'll have it on the screens here. Um, first, we see that both their coming had been foretold. Both were born into poverty as a Hebrew. Both were hunted as infants. Both were anointed to lead the people of God to the promised land. Both bring them through water and blood out of slavery into freedom. Both are used to establish a covenant with those who believe. And there's many more. Both reveal his will and his way on a mountain. Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Both left a life of power, prosperity, and humble themselves to identify with the poor and broken in our world. Both of their biographies spans four books of the Bible. Moses, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Both tell us very little about their childhood, but their adulthood, their life would be used by God to change the world. It's amazing. It's amazing. Roughly 1,500 years plus before the time of Jesus. And Jesus is in so many ways a fulfillment of this story. The story doesn't end in Exodus. That's just the beginning. And we look back and we see Christ. We see his hand. When Jesus was being crucified, the Romans had this practice of uh, to speed up the process of death, they would break the legs of those who were crucified so that all their weight would be on their arms and they would die of asphyxiation. And so they go around each of the crosses and they would break the legs. And they get to Jesus and they don't break his legs. And that story is found in John. Uh, it says this in John 14. It'll be on the screens. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Next passage. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Where does that scripture come from? Not one of his bones would be broken. Where is that from? The only place that's found in the entire Bible is in Exodus chapter 12. And it's describing the way that you cook the lamb for Passover. Don't break the bones. And Jesus fulfills this prophecy of the Passover lamb on the cross by his bones not being break, broken. Uh, in, in our lives, if we were to say to someone, we wanted to communicate that, it, that I feel it from something deep within, the deepest parts of who I am, I would say, I feel it in my bones. The Hebrews would say the same thing. The bones represent someone's soul, someone's heart. There is something there that Jesus was killed, but he wasn't broken. His essence, his soul, his spirit isn't broken. And if you know, Jesus doesn't just represent the lamb that was sacrificed and the destroyer passed over. He doesn't just fulfill that and represent the spotless lamb that was sacrificed. He also represents the firstborn slain son. Jesus doesn't go up, show up on the scene and just do another exodus. He doesn't go before Rome and the Roman emperor Caesar and go before him as Moses went before Pharaoh. Jesus goes before Caesar and he says, let my people go or I'll kill your firstborn son. No, Jesus becomes the firstborn son 
to overcome evil with love. Exodus isn't the end of the story. It all points to Jesus. I want to invite Noe and the band to come up. We'll close with this song. We're going to close with the Lord's Supper. We're going to close with communion. Uh, communion was first given the night before Jesus was uh, crucified. And they were having the Passover meal. Communion then usurps Passover and becomes our new marker of remembrance, of going back. And uh, we take it because of that. And baptism is our crossing through the Red Sea, leaving slavery into abundant life in Christ. And the early Christians saw that connection right away. It's our new crossing through the waters in baptism. We're having our next baptism service on November 18th. And if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you. It is the death certificate to the old life. And it is the birth certificate to the new life in Christ. Uh, and so I'm going to ask uh, four of our leaders to come up. I've talked to them before. And they're going to be standing at this station right over on this side. And this station right over here. And there's crackers. And there's a goblet of grape juice. And you're going to grab the cracker and the cracker, as soon as you grab it, someone will tell you the body of Christ broken for you. And then you're going to grab that cracker and dip it into the goblet of juice. And they're going to say the blood of Christ shed for you. It, it's spiritually significant because it was for you when Jesus went to that cross. He had you in mind. He had Nellie in mind. He had Jake in mind. He had Brandon in mind. He had Corey in mind. He had you at the forefront of his being, in his bones. He could feel you dying for you. His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. And so we're gonna, as you feel led during this song, would you stand? You can make your way to both stations and partake in these elements. And we're uniting ourselves with 2,000 years of Christian history, 2,000 years of Christians taking these elements, remembering what Jesus did for us and his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. So Father, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your call in our lives. The call of Moses, the same God who called Moses, you're calling us. So call us, God. Call us out of complacency. Call us out of rationalization. Call us, soften these hardened hearts, God. Soften these hardened hearts. Remove the callousness. Remove our pride. And as we take these elements, God, may we remember your sacrifice on that cross 2,000 years ago. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing this last song and partake in these elements together? take communion as you see fit or as the Spirit leads.
you hurting and broken thin Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin Jesus is calling Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Leave behind your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, what a Savior Isn't he wonderful Sing 